passage is John 8.58. So let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and we'll be, you'll be hearing from some different speakers this month, both on Sundays and Wednesdays, and they will be focusing on the Advent calendar for their message. So this morning, we have an incredibly powerful passage, and it's located in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chapter 8, verse 58. This is Jesus speaking, and he's been in conflict with the Jewish religious leadership, and he said these words, John 8, 58. John 8, 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones, that is the religious leaders, picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we look at the majestic gospel of John and uh, link some passages that go with what Jesus said here. We are reminded of the grandeur of these I am statements, how profound, how deep they are, the gravity of what they teach us. And some of those we'll be focused on as we do these messages this month, but this one is uh, just so powerful and so incredible. Before Abraham came into existence, Jesus says, I am. Now we know that Abraham lived over a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, so this obviously riled up the Jewish religious leadership, and it brought questions, and even they thought he was blaspheming because of the radical nature of the claim. And Lord, we want to know you by name. That's really what this Advent season is about, knowing you by name, knowing who you are, knowing your true identity, and knowing who you are makes us understand who we are. And I pray that all the distractions, all the weights, all the struggles that we can bring into a place like this, this season sometimes is fraught with difficulty for many. I pray that the light of the world, the great I am, would comfort our fears, would grant us supernatural joy and peace, and that you would guide our steps, Lord, as we follow you and as we know you, who you are by name. So bless this time. Open your word to our hearts. Soften and stir our hearts, Lord, how we need it. We pray that you'd bless this time. Make us good soil for your word. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Uh, you may have come across them before. Maybe you've studied them before. Each of them are spoken by Jesus and each of them make a profound point about who he is. And so what I want to do is take you as an introduction through the seven statements. I'm not going to go into depth on them, but I want to point them out to you and have you highlight them in your Bible if you haven't done them before. Each of them has like a metaphor, a description of Jesus and who he is and what he offers. Each of them call for a response from you and me, and each of them will have a result if you respond. Look at the first one. It's in John 6, 35. Each of them spoken by Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am that's what you want to highlight. It's an I am statement. I am, John 6, 35, the bread of life. The response, he who comes to me shall not hunger, 
he who believes in me shall never thirst. Notice the claim, I am the bread of life. The response, we have to come and believe. The result, we will not hunger and thirst anymore. So I want you to think about the claim, the response, and the result as we go through this. Now, this is not one of the seven, but it, it's closely related to it, and it's in John 7, 37. Take a peek. Now, on the last day of the, the great day of the feast, that's tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus spoke this about the Holy Spirit, and he's basically uh, confirming the fact that if you come to him and believe in him, the result will be an overflowing life. The second I am statement I want you to see is in John 8, 12. I would encourage you to keep marking these. John 8, 12, Jesus says, he spoke to them saying, I am, there's the I am statement, the light of the world. That's the Greek word cosmos. That speaks of uh, him being the creator of the world and the light of this darkened world system. The response, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but the result will be he or she will have what? The light of life. The claim, he's the light of the world. Think about how powerful that is. You have to follow him to realize that, and then you won't be in darkness, and you will have light in your life. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the light that enlightens every man and woman. John 10, 9, if you flip over there, is the third one I want to show you. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. The response, if anyone enters through me, the result, he will be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture or find freedom. Think of a sheep going out and enjoying the pasture and the beauty of it and all that goes with that. Uh, here's the fourth one. I am, John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Flip over to John eleven twenty five. This will kind of answer the result of that claim. Jesus laying down his life for us. And in John eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, that's how we respond to the claim. This is the response, and this is the reality of what he said about being the good shepherd. And the result is that even he shall live, the person who responds to this, even if he what? If he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? Do you see a trend here? A claim is made, a radical claim, an exclusive claim, a gigantic claim about his identity. And then he says, it's not enough for you just to know that I'm claiming this. And by the way, I don't just teach about the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you believe in me, you will never die. And he's talking about spiritual death here. You won't experience the wrath of God because of my death and resurrection for you. Incredible. And then John 14. I have two more to show you. Verse 6, one that you're probably very familiar with. Jesus makes this claim in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father 
but through me. In John 14, 1, Jesus talked about, in my Father's house there are many mansions. So he's talking about heaven. The result of this is big. If you believe in Jesus, you end up in the Father's house, you end up in heaven. I love the movie, The Field of Dreams. How many of you love that movie? It's a baseball movie, and it's about a dad and a son, you know, not uh, doing well, and some regret and all of that, and so Kevin Costner's out there. I think his name is Ray Kinsella. Dad appears uh, through, it's not theologically correct, but you guys know the story. He's out there in the field in Iowa. And uh, after some incredible moments, um, the dad says to the son, so I think it's John Kinsella says to Ray, is this heaven? And he responds, no, it's Iowa. And then Kevin Costner's character says, is there a heaven? And his dad responds, oh yeah. It's where dreams come true. Do you know that Jesus said there's a heaven? And he said, if it weren't true, if there was no heaven, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. The only way you're going to end up in heaven is if you come through the one who said, I am the way to my father's house. You must come through me. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, Jesus is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's the Lord. Because no one can make claims like this and be rational, and nobody who's looked at the life of Jesus didn't believe that he didn't have a majestic, rational mind. His sermons are incredibly profound and deep. Nobody ever spoke like him. He's a liar, second option, they're all L's. He intentionally misled millions of people claiming that he was the singular way to God, but he's actually not. Some people say, oh, there's a fourth option. He really believed it. He really believed it, but he wasn't it. Uh, wouldn't that still make you kind of a lunatic? You really had a Messiah complex, but you really weren't the Messiah? Third option, says C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and was converted to Jesus Christ marvelously. Third option, he's the Lord. And you must come through him. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord of heaven. And by the way, what buttressed, what backed up Jesus' claims is not simply the claim, but his teaching and his miracles. He said, destroy this body, and in three days I will raise it again. And he did it. Houdini said his ultimate trick his ultimate magic trick was that he was going to defeat death and for a while his followers would gather on october 31st halloween night waiting for houdini to call back by the way he never called back because death is that great uh, equalizer and the only way that it's going to be defeated in your life and mine is if we follow the one who is the resurrection and the life and the way to heaven See, Jesus is not some marginal option for an American's life just in case you want to add him to your portfolio. Do you know I heard a statistic recently that the average Christian who says they're committed to a church attends 1.5 times a month. One and a half times a month. And I said, where do you get the half? And I answered the question simply by this. Sometimes I look out and people are kind of halfway there. And some people sleep on people next to them. 
And the frightening thing about that is sometimes the people next to them don't know them. But anyway, there you go. And the last one <laughs> is John 15, 5. And Alex is going to preach on this this Wednesday if you want more. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is the claim, here's what you have to do. If you want the result, you have to abide in him, and I in you, he says, and the result will be that you bear much fruit, for apart from me, says Jesus, you can do what? You can do nothing. These are seven I am statements. The claim, the response, the result. Now think with me. If you don't respond to the claim, you reject Jesus. When he says, I'm the door, you don't enter the door. He says, I'm the bread, you don't eat the spiritual bread. He says, I'm the way, you don't come through him. Then you don't get the result, which in the case is being spiritually satisfied, walking in the light, being on your way to heaven, being connected to the vine. If you're not connected to the vine, you cut branches off in your backyard. If they're not connected to the tree, what happens? In a few days, they die. Here's what you have to understand. If you don't respond to the truth, you don't get the result. You don't have life. You don't have the hope of heaven. You, you are not going to experience his resurrection power. This is what modern listeners don't want to hear, but this is what we need to hear. Jesus is not providing an option. He's saying, I am it, and if you don't come to me, you're not coming at all. And that's what bothers a lot of modern people. Because they say something like this. Don't all roads lead to God? Isn't it just about being sincere? Isn't it just about if it's your truth, then it must be true? Well, I think Jesus would beg to differ. And let's look at the evidence, right? It doesn't do anybody any good if we play games with statements that are very exclusive but are so exhilarating because he has made a way, amen? He has provided it. He has come into our world. He is the great I am. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But if we don't respond to him, then we're not going to experience the life that he promises. Now, the one we're focusing on is John 8, 58 for this morning. And I would love to go through all this dialogue because it's just so good. <laughs> But I'm going to have to pick my spots here as we go through this. But what leads up to this is a record of a conflict that Jesus has with the Jewish religious leadership that begins in John 8, 21. So we're going to focus the rest of our time right here. And let's take a look together as we take a look at the, uh, the back and forth that goes on in the conflict. And here's how it starts out. So this is John 8, 21. Then Jesus said, therefore again to them, to the Jewish religious leadership, I go away and you shall seek me and shall die in your sin or under the curse of your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, in John 8, 24, peek ahead and we'll, we'll look at this in a minute. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will what? 
die in your sins. So you can see the repetition from verse 21 to 24. You've got to believe or you will die in your sin. To die in your sin means this. There's a, there's a word for forgiveness in Greek. And when you study the word for forgive, it actually means to send away. So you can think of the uh, Day of Atonement when they would, the high priest would confess the sins of the nation and they would send a scapegoat away and he would, he would be led off into the wilderness. And symbolically, when the high priest confessed the sins of the nation of Israel, the scapegoat would be carrying the sins of the nation. So he became like a picture of forgiveness in, that, in this sense. The confession is made and the sins are carried away. That's what the word forgive means. It means that it's no longer on you. Your sins have been carried off of you. They've been carried away. That's what it means to forgive. You, you get rid of it. You put it away from you. Well, Jesus says, if you don't believe that I am who I claim to be, and we're going to see that he's claiming to be God himself, you're going to die in your sins. Now, those are not my words. Those are Jesus' words. And just a, a word of encouragement for those of you who are regularly witnessing when somebody says to you, that's just your opinion, say, no, it's not. That's actually what Jesus said. So your argument is with Jesus. If you have an issue with what he said, I understand. And some of these are radical, exclusive claims. But please know, I'm just quoting the Bible to you. This is what Jesus said. And I think it would be good for modern listeners and modern people who are just on our planet to hear what he said, and then they can weigh it and see if they want to believe it, right? You do have free will. You do have that option. And so to die in your sin goes back to the idea of the book of Ezekiel. The watchman's on the wall. He is to warn them with the trumpet blast. You can write down Ezekiel 3.18. And if the person responds to the trumpet, um, the sin is no longer on them. Or if you're the one blowing the trumpet, you're not responsible for them because you blew the warning blast. So this is the idea. Jesus is using language that if you believe that I am who I claim to be, then your sin will be removed and sent away from you. You'll be forgiven. But if you don't believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sin. What does that mean? That means that you will die with it still there instead of being sent away. Everybody with me? You'll have to deal with the sin still being on you instead of on the ultimate scapegoat, who is Jesus. See, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a divine transaction. Your sin, if you're in Christ, went to Him, and uh, His righteousness goes to you. That's the great exchange of the cross. But if you don't participate in that exchange, then your sin doesn't go to Him, even though He died for it. He died for everybody. But you don't receive the gift, so your sin is not, uh, he doesn't pay for it on the cross. It remains on you and you die in it. And so to die in your sin means what? It means you have to face Almighty God still cloaked in your sinfulness. Now think of, just for a moment, and I don't want to bum you out. This is a Christmas season, Pastor Michael. Come on. All right, here we go. Just think for a moment. Just, just one, one moment. Think of how many sins you've committed over your lifetime. All right. And I'm talking about actions, words, things that you failed to do 
things that you thought, oh, God help me, and then, and then things that even your motivation was wrong. So like five different categories, right? Now, all I got to do is start thinking for about a second. <laughs> for me personally, and I'm like, rut row. <laughs> to use a Scooby-Doo expression, Ralph Raggy, I need help. If I die in just one of my sins, I'm in trouble. But I got more than one, and I would venture to say you do too. And so if your sin is not dealt with, you die in it. What does that mean? You have to stand before Almighty God, and the Bible says that He is a consuming fire, and He dwells in unapproachable light. Moses at the burning bush didn't even want to look. People who encountered him in the Old Testament said, I don't want to look at him. He's too holy. I can't even live in his presence. You see, this is the reality of sin. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's why he came. He came to save you and me. To save us from what? From our sin, from judgment. Now the Jews responded to the claim and they said, verse 22, Surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going you cannot come. Now Jesus was going back to where he came from, which was heaven. He was sent by the Father to the earth. And Jesus is saying, you can't come there because I'm going to heaven and since you won't receive me, you're not going to be able to end up there. You won't enter the place that I've prepared for my followers. But notice how they, they don't think about themselves. They think about him. They said, oh, well, if he's going somewhere where we can't come, that must mean that he's going to commit suicide. What? Yeah, because in the Jewish mind, to commit suicide meant you were consigned to the darkest and worst place in hell. Now, please hear me. That is not what the Bible teaches. But that's what the Jewish thought was of the day. You commit that kind of sin of self-murder, you end up in the darkest, worst place. Now get this. That's the one place they thought they could never end up. So they said, well, if he's going somewhere where we can't come, he must be committing suicide, or thinking about it, because he's going to end up in the darkest and worst place of hell, and we could never end up there because we're sons of Abraham, we're Jewish, and we're religious. Uh-oh. Actually, Jesus taught in Luke 16 that you can end up there even if you're a son of Abraham, but they thought, well, no, Abraham guards the gate, and anybody who has the right you know, uh, ancestry, and everybody, you, know, you have the right paperwork, you're good. No, you're not. You must receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. But that's what they thought. He must be going to commit suicide. Ray Comfort was speaking at a local church and he was about to come in and speak. A young man was sitting outside. And, uh, how you doing, Ray? He said to the young man. The young man said, oh, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be here. The only reason I come to this place, talking about church, is because my parents make me. The young man went, on to describe how he was suicidal and uh, was considering taking his life, sitting right outside the church building on the church grounds. 
So Ray said, would you please pray for this young man? Because I had a chance to witness to him and tell him about the good news of Jesus. Ray went on to say uh, a phenomenon in the last couple of years is a, a Netflix series called 13 Reasons. You heard about it? In the movie, the heroine of the movie, a young teenage girl, records on video, uh, on uh, audio cassettes actually, her 13 reasons why she's going to commit suicide. Each of them are connected to a person. So she says, this teacher did me wrong, this counselor wasn't there for me, this friend did me wrong, this, this young man date raped me. And she goes through her reasons, and, and in the drama of it all, her reasons are quite significant and painful. And you, you kind of, as you watch it, and I did watch it because I wanted to see what people were watching, um, she, she's someone that kind of captivates you. The whole storyline can captivate you. But at the end, she, she becomes a, the hero of the story in this sense that she goes into the bathtub, but before she goes into the bathtub to kill herself, she basically uh, gives the audio cassettes out to basically give it to him. Like, right before I kill myself, I want you to know that you're one of the reasons. You're one of the 13. And then she's in the bathtub in this awful scene. She takes razor blades and cuts up her arms. And it is so graphic and so terrible to watch. It, it'll take your breath away. After that, uh, I heard Ray say that two young teenage girls committed suicide a few days after watching that series, I think up in the Bay Area. And that was the problem with the movie is that they kind of glorified her actions. This is never the answer. And I've gone on this little rabbit trail maybe because some of you have wrestled with this before or maybe because you know someone who is in a dire situation. But let me just say this to you. Jesus was not talking about committing suicide. No way. But that's what they concluded. That's what they thought he was saying. Because they couldn't imagine that they could be under the judgment of God. You see, there are many people that think, if I just get out of the world, if I just get out of here, then all the pain will go away. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the pain goes away when you meet the one who is your healer. Jehovah Rapha, if we could put it that way. And so they were mistaken. Jesus said, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, part of the world system, evil world system. I am not of this world. You've got it wrong, fellas. I'm going back to heaven. I'm not going to be consigned to the deepest part of hell. You are gravely mistaken. In fact, I am the king of heaven. And you're going to bask in this light for a little while longer. Make sure you respond to it. You see the gravity of what's going on? They're talking to God in the flesh. And they were so cavalier and so blinded by their own sin. And then Jesus said, Therefore I say to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am. He is, trans is uh, added by the translators. So it's, italicized or it's in parentheses in your versions i believe he says unless you believe that i am please note that we'll come back to that designation you will what 
you will die without your sins being sent away from you. Unless you believe that I am who I claim to be. Now in Greek, I am is a phrase, ego eimi. We'll dig that out in detail a little bit more. But that is what God said to Moses when Moses said, when I go to the children of Israel and uh, they ask me, who is it that sent me? And they ask for your name. What should I say your name is? This is Exodus 3. And God responds, tell them I am. Now can you imagine a human being making a claim like that? There are people who read the New Testament and say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. Right here, he is making a claim to be the eternal God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And he says, unless you believe that I am the eternal God, you will die in your sins. Leon Morris, great commentator on the Bible, talks about, how this envisages such a high view of Christ that it's hard to imagine that anyone could take this any other way than Jesus being God. He claims to be the eternal God. Josh McDowell wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. He is much more than a carpenter. Get this. Several years ago, Dr. Gordon A. Alley's a noted chemist and the man who pioneered the development of insulin for the treatment of diabetes died of that very disease. His friends who were closest to him came to one of two conclusions. Either he did not know he had the disease or he purposely neglected to use the remedy. What irony! The man who knew more about the cure for diabetes then anyone else in the world died of that disease. I do not know, says R. Kent Hughes, what the truth of the matter was, but if Allies knew his condition, the situation was even more tragic. In the same way a person can know that Christ is the I Am, he can give all of his mind to that, but unless there comes a belief that involves receiving the cure, he will die in his sins. Isn't it ironic? The, the person who figured out the disease and the cure didn't give it to himself. And there are people who can sit in churches their whole lives and never truly realize who Jesus is and never come to him for the cure. God forbid that it, that would happen. But do you think it happens? I'd say yes. Some years ago we had a couple who was attending the fellowship and they had invited a woman who was a Jehovah's Witness to our fellowship. She sat in the back row. She snuck in on a Wednesday night and she listened to the gospel presentation and she opened her heart to Christ. Uh, those who had invited her heard her praying the sinner's prayer along with me and uh, she was saved. Uh, a week later I got a report that that young woman in her 20s, a Jehovah's Witness, died in a tragic car accident that week. And the week before, two Christian people invited her to a church service, probably overcoming fear and hoping she would respond. She opens her heart on the back row of our little church and then dies in a car accident the next week. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus making claims that have to do with life and death kind of stuff. 
So they respond and they say, well, who are you? Jesus said, what I've been saying to you from the, the beginning. What do you mean? That wasn't clear enough that I just said I am? That I just said, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins? Well, who are you? Huh. We need a little bit more. Do I need to open the eyes of another blind person or unstop the ears of another deaf person or cast out another demon or hush the sea again for you to believe? Oh, later I'll call Lazarus out of the grave, but you won't believe even when I do that. So Jesus says, I have many things to speak to judge concerning you, but he who sent me, that's the Father, is true. The things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. When he said, he sent me, they, they didn't get it. Maybe they thought of a human father. Or, I don't know. Jesus 28, therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, primarily the reference there is the cross, then you will know that, what? I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. When you lift me up on the cross, you'll get it. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross? The centurion said, Certainly this man was the Son of God. Do you remember the cataclysmic things that happened? It was dark at noontime from noon to three. The earth shook. The tombs broke open. There was some radical stuff going on. A whole lot of shaking going on. And some people woke up when they realized what was going on, that there were signs of divine judgment coming on Jesus as he said, Father, forgive them. As he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he struggles with the agony of the cross. Now, when he spoke these things, look at verse 30, there were many who came to believe in him. That's great news. Many, but not all. But many believed. So notice the power of the statement. Many people believed. And he said to them, look at 31. Jesus was therefore saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. So truly disciples of mine. If you hold to my teaching, NIV, you are really my disciples. And you shall know the truth. What truth? What he's been saying about himself. And the truth shall what? Make you free. Do you know that the truth that makes you free is actually the truth about the identity of Jesus? That's the context. So you know how people say, you know it says somewhere, the truth shall set you free. And most people think that means like any kind of truth. Like, you know, just... If you find out the truth about a matter, it'll set you free. And maybe there's a connotation to that, but that's not the direct setting. It's the truth about who he is that makes you free. It's receiving and abiding in that truth that makes you free. Everybody got it? That's what he's saying. If you truly have come to me and you're convinced of who I am, then abide in that reality and you'll be free. How many people are looking for freedom today? How many people are longing for peace? How many people sleep a couple hours a night because their minds roll over all these big questions unanswered constantly and consistently? What am I going to do? Where's my life going? What am I gonna, how am I going to get peace? How am I going to do? How am I going to? And we have the answer. 
I, I'll tell you this, send these seven I, st- I am statements to someone who doesn't know the truth about Jesus. Let them just think about them. I would imagine that they'll probably be open at least to listening to what he had to say. And so he says, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. They claim that they've never been in bondage to anybody. You ever been talking to a friend who's not a believer and you go, man, Jesus will make you free. And they're like, dude, I've got no worries about being free. I'm good. I'm not a slave. I, I got no problems with bondage kind of stuff, you know, in terms of, of being, being under the bondage or the weight of uh, uh, some sort of sin that I can't overcome. And then you look at the 17 things in their life that are destroying them. Uh, but I want to be free. I, I talked to one guy outside the gym and I said, hey, you need to know Jesus. And he goes, no, no, I want to be free to do what I want to do. Okay. So you won't come to the God who made you because you want to do what you want to do, whatever that means. I did what I wanted to do for about the first 20-something years of my life. Pretty much made a mess of things. <laughs> and then I started trying to do what he's asked me to do. And I found a deep contentment, a deep mission. Not an easy life. No, 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 no. But profound, weighty, Stuff that answers questions not only for here, but for the next life. Amen? That's what I'm living for. If therefore the Son makes you free, what will happen? You'll be free indeed. Here's the problem. 37, but my word doesn't have a place in you. (laughs) I heard uh, David Jeremiah say, even Mary who bore Jesus in her womb had to experience a rebirth in her heart. He who took up abode in her womb had to take up residence in her heart. We have to be born again. We have to be born from above. We have to be born from God Almighty. It has to be a spiritual birth. Well, there's a lot of back and forth, a lot of tough stuff that goes on we don't have time to get into. I would encourage you to read it later. They accuse him of having a demon of being a Samaritan. They, they accuse him of just about everything under the sun. And let's skip ahead to verse 56. They've been claiming that they're from Abraham. Jesus says, no, actually the devil's your father because he's the God of this world. There's a lot of impolitically correct language in the text. And Jesus says, your father Abraham, this one that you keep talking about, he rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And was glad. Now, those of you who have been Bible studies on John 8, 52, what was the day? What day? How did Abraham see Jesus' day? Probably up on Mount Moriah when he took Isaac up there and acted out the cross, which would happen 2,000 years later. So Abraham lives about 2,000 years before Jesus. But when he was about to sacrifice his son and he was stopped by the angel of the Lord, there he saw the gospel. He saw Christ's day, the day that was coming, the cross, and even... Uh, by Isaac living the resurrection. The Jews therefore said to him, you're not even 50 years old. This doesn't mean that Jesus was close to 50. We know he died about the age of 33. But it's a round number. You're not even 50 years old. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago, and you've seen Abraham? Some ancient manuscripts actually say, and Abraham's seen you? 
And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. I am. Now, just in case we think, well, maybe Jesus was just, you know, saying uh, something different. Like, he's not really claiming to be God. Maybe they just, maybe modern scholars just misunderstood the statement. Look at the response of the Jewish religious leadership. Therefore, in light of the statement, they what? They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Oh, they knew what he was saying. And in Leviticus, it says you can be stoned for blasphemy, and that's what they wanted to do. They picked up rocks to condemn him as a criminal against the law of God. And of course, it wasn't his time to die. He would not die in that way, and so he was veiled from them, whatever, whatever that looked like. And I want to show you, as we wind down, the statement in Exodus 3. So let's turn over. It's the second book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus Chapter 3, this great I am statement, where does it come from? Why did they get so upset? Uh, how is it that this makes Jesus claim that he is God? Let's, uh, just for the sake of time, we know that Moses is out there in the wilderness, uh, now near Mount Horeb, and uh, he sees this burning bush. So he sees a bush that burns, but it's not consumed. And if you've seen the movie The Ten Commandments with Cecil B. DeMille, you kind of get the idea, right? So it's burning, but it's not consumed, and it becomes a picture of the nation of Israel. The fire is burning them, the fire of affliction and slavery in Egypt, but they're not consumed because of the mightiness of the God of Jacob. Therefore, you are not consumed, O Israel, because I am the same. I don't change. I love you. And so Moses is called by God to be the deliverer, to be the mouthpiece, and Moses, you know, informs God about a few current events like, uh, Lord, you may not uh, know this, but I don't talk very well. I'm not a good public speaker, and uh, maybe you got the wrong guy. <laughs> uh, there's, there's more excuses that come a little bit later. But Moses is the guy. And uh, if you feel unqualified for ministry, you're qualified. That's the first thing we look for. We ask somebody to do something, they say, oh, I don't feel like I could ever do that. And we say, Good! Good, because then you're going to have to rely on God's power. You qualify. Welcome to the club. Join the whole litany of people who said, I'm the least in the, don't you know who I am? I can't speak well. God says, oh, I know who I called. I knocked on your door today for a reason. I know who you are. Are, 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 are you sure, Lord? Yep, I'm sure. You're going to be the guy. Lord, here I am. Send him. Lord, here I am. Send her. And the Lord says, no, you're going. Remember the cowardly lion outside the witch's castle? Wicked witch or no wicked witch, I'll do it for Dorothy. Right? I'll tear him up. And then he says, I just got one thing to ask of you, fellas. And they say, what's that? And he goes, talk me out of it. Classic scene. Anyway, we all feel that way. And that's how Moses felt. Verse 13, Exodus 3, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
Now they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Pivotal moment for Moses, for the nation. And God said to Moses from the burning bush. And by the way, earlier it says it's the angel of the Lord. We believe it's Jesus in the bush saying what he would say later to the religious leaders. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You want to know, Moses? Here it is. This is what you tell them. Now, there's two primary uh, uh, ways to walk this out. And I wish I had more time, but let me just give you the scriptures in rapid fire. Many scholars like F.F. Bruce and others believe that the I am he statement links to many scriptures in Isaiah in rapid fire. Isaiah 41.4, calling forth generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. In Isaiah 43.10, understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Even verse 13, Isaiah 43, from eternity I am he. There is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am he. The one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. Isaiah 46.4, even to your old age, I shall be the same. ESV, I am he. And even to your graying years, praise the Lord. <laughs> even to your graying years. How many of you can say amen to that? Some of you aren't there yet. But in certain lights, I have more gray hair than in other lights. Why is that? Because I have gray hair. It's just a reality. It's tough. I know there are certain aisles where you can cover it up. But even sometimes that looks a little strange and no I haven't gone there yet for the top but uh, I have friends that are accusing me but in certain lights there's more gray but the light exposes the reality <laughs> well, that was just a personal rant for a second there anyway Isaiah 48 12 says listen to me O Jacob even Israel whom I called I am he I am the first and I am also the last I am the eternal God. Now that's uh, supplementary to Exodus, but that's where many scholars believe this comes from. I am who I am in Hebrew is eye, esher, eye. It could simply mean I am or I am who I am. The question, what is your name? Well, when God answers, he answers by revealing his nature. In fact, the, the letter Aleph is like R-A, and it's within the I am response. And what he is saying is, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. In the language, it means I'm the creator and sustainer of the universe. I am God. I am not I used to be, not I will be, although that can be implied in the language because he's eternal. I am. I am the self-existent one. I don't need anybody to make me. Who made God? Tell me that, Christian. <laughs> you ever heard that one before? God doesn't need a creator because he is the uncaused cause. What do you mean? Ouch, that hurts. I need another donut. Here's what it means. Contingent things need a creator. Anything that had a beginning needs a beginner. We are in a building because there was a builder. 
Paintings exist because there's a painter. I hold a Bible because somebody put the Bible together. This did not evolve over millions of years, starting with an explosion. And then all the information. DNA is much more complex than a book that you would hold in your hand. There's a creator. You can't have a world without having a cause for the world. Because if there was nothing before there was something, how can nothing make something? Hmm. I heard Charlie Campbell say to his daughter, Honey, how would you define nothing? She said, Daddy, six years old. Daddy, nothing is no thing. And he went, Oh, <laughs> oh yes, out of the mouth of babes. Nothing is no thing. And from no thing, you can't get anything because no thing is nothing. <laughs> Think about it. How could you have a world where even scientists said it had a beginning and claim it's a big bang if before that there was nothing to even cause a bang because nothing is no thing. Everybody got that? All right. See if, see if you can use that one in your next conversation. Now, when, God, when you see the word Lord in your Bible, it's Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. It's called the tetragrammaton. Gram, tetragrammaton. It's literally a word that means the four letters. So when you see Lord capitalized in your Bible, it's Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. And it, we, best we can do, because we don't have the vowels, is Yahweh or Yahweh. In the Hebrew picture language, the name of God connecting with the I am, but this is the word for Lord or YHWH, means the maker of all that is. This is implied within the name. It's the hand uh, that, from which all comes into being. It's the self-existent one. It's the letters yud He vav He. The yud is a hand in the Hebrew picture language. It's the one who holds everything in his hands. It, it's true. The old song is true. He's got the <laughs> in his hands. That, you guys, this is when happens when uh, you sing the birthday song at work. Everybody's off key. <laughs> People look around and say, keep your day job. Come on, man. Anyway, this is who he is. Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. The voice of the burning bush. The one who said, let there be light. And there was light. Do you know who that little baby born in Bethlehem was? Oh, it's amazing. The great I am entered our world. Why? Because he loves you. Do you know who loves you? Do you know who he is? Do you know when you read about him, that's who you're reading about? Do you know him? Have you made that commitment to say, yes, I will respond because I want those results. I want life. I want to know you. Doesn't it make sense that you wouldn't be satisfied or complete until you know the one who made you? Would you pray with me? We're going to take communion. Father, thank you so much for this powerful section. I feel like we've just walked on holy ground and I think every 
pastor teacher would say, I hope we did at least some justice to the profound gravity of these statements. They're beyond what I could even probably give uh, the right descriptions to with words, but thank you for the metaphors of bread and light and rushing water and the door to pasture and the way to heaven and the vine and the branches. Thank you for giving us things that we can hold on to, Lord. Ultimately, we have to open our heart to you. That's the key to this whole thing. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met this great I am, if you didn't know who Jesus really was, if you've seen it clearly for the first time, or maybe you've been just hanging around the edges of it, but you haven't really understood that he is God, ask him into your life something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe, say it out loud if it's you, I believe that you are who you claim to be. I'm going to receive you as my God, my Lord, and my Savior. I turn from my sin. I don't want to die in it, Lord. I don't want to die without you. And I put my trust in you for my salvation. I believe, pray it if it's you, don't wait. I believe that you took my sin at that cross. I believe that you forgive. I believe that you rose from the dead just like you said you would, and I want to know you. I want to know the power of your name. I want to know the power of your resurrection. When I suffer, I even want to know I can have fellowship with you in my suffering. I want to live for that which will last. Lord, for those who have opened their hearts, those who have rededicated their lives, those who maybe just, they needed a word of encouragement about who they follow, who they've given their life to. May you bless them, may you keep them, may your beautiful face shine upon them. May you give them peace in the knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and may each of us grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As we come to your table, Father, and remember his great sacrifice, we look forward to his second coming. Pray that you would bless the bread. Let, me, let us be spiritually nourished. Bless the cup. Let that vine life come into us, Lord. Renew us, stir us, strengthen us to love and good deeds, we pray in Jesus' name.